Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. This Humankind special, Steps to Recovery, the History of AA, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund, whose contributors include the Henry Luce Foundation. Nothing, nothing had worked for him from peer pressure to wife pressure. Uh, But Wilson talking to him one-on-one obviously had a profound effect. Once he got sober after that final drunk, he stayed sober until he died in 1950. How the special bond between fellow sufferers gave birth to the worldwide recovery movement of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. From his earliest drinking experiences as a young soldier at a party during World War I, Bill Wilson of East Dorset, Vermont, recalled getting thoroughly drunk. The next time or two, he passed out completely. Thus began his ride on the wild horse of alcoholism. He pledged to his increasingly anxious wife, Lois, and to himself that he would quit. Yet over and over, Bill would drink again. The downward spiral of these repeated relapses endangered his health, wrecked his finances, shattered his self-confidence, and drove him to the edge of bewilderment. But Bill Wilson eventually discovered a formula for addiction recovery that would truly change the world. People had known for centuries that once an alcoholic, what they called an alcoholic, started drinking, he couldn't stop. Wilson's brilliant insight, in my opinion, was uh, that that's not the problem for an alcoholic, stopping once they start. The problem for an alcoholic is, why do you pick up a drink when you've got no booze in your body? Why do you pick up the first drink? It doesn't make any sense. That's Bill S. of Fairfield, Connecticut. He uses only his initial when speaking publicly about Alcoholics Anonymous in accordance with AA's tradition of anonymity. Bill is a dealer in rare books and an author now writing a history of AA. He's maintained continuous sobriety for over 30 years and has pondered the mystery of alcoholic denial. Every time you pick up a drink, you get get fired, your wife throws you out of the house, you have car accidents, you, you hurt yourself. There's nothing but problems. You know it. You've sworn on Bibles. I'm never going to drink again. Why, when you got no booze in your body, you pick up the first drink? Wilson was very clear that we have these alcoholics, have these blank mental spots where no matter what happened before, no matter what we said, no matter what we promised, we pick up a drink. 
And once we pick up the first drink, then we're dead. Now, when you're an active alcoholic, you're on the wrong train, going down the wrong track, in the wrong direction, making all the wrong stops. And to wrench your life over to a life of sobriety and get on the right track, going in the right direction, making all the right sober stops is a very difficult thing to do. Alcoholics are up against the formidable foe of addiction. It's described in AA literature as cunning, baffling, and powerful. As one alcoholic told me, other people think you're doing it, but to the alcoholic, it feels like it's being done to you. And this exasperating pattern rarely yields to simple willpower. Until the mid-1930s, drunkards were widely written off as incurable and tragic. But eight decades ago, Alcoholics Anonymous was born. Tens of millions of people in utter despair have since found relief. Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University, has studied why AA works. Well, it has a lot of the things in it that we know changes human behavior. Um, you know, a group who supports and, uh, and models change. I mean, anybody who's had to uh, join a running group to get the motivation to exercise understands the effect that social support has when we want to we improve our behavior. Um, it has modeling. Uh, and you can go in and see people who have been sober 5, 10, 20 years and see the things they're doing and go, hey, you know, I'd like to be like that. You know, how is that person pulling that off? How do I, how do, I do that? And it instills hope. Um, people come in in a very bad situation, and then they see other people say, you know what, I was in a bad situation, and now I'm doing well. And hope is a very important part of change. I mean, if we don't believe things can get better, we're not going to try to put in the effort. In addition to offering hope, AA has formulated specific tools and time-tested practices for maintaining a sober life. These are famously distilled into a short list known as the 12 Steps, and Alcoholics Anonymous is broadly accessible. It's free, it's open to all, and AA groups, now numbering about 65,000 in the United States and Canada, are found in practically every community. AA is really, you know, the font of most uh, self-help groups ar around uh, the country now. I mean, it, it, and it's not just for alcohol and, or even not just for addictions, but there's many, many other groups uh, concerned with everything from being overweight to coping with cancer to coping with depression that, you know, use a model where you bring people together who share an experience and, and therefore feel a sense of intimacy and trust and you learn from each other how to cope with the situation you're in. And, and that model has clearly been very potent. It's certainly drawn in millions and millions of people now for, you know, what, 80 years. an alcoholic named Ralph B. authored some of the Alcoholics Anonymous literature. He and others I've spoken with new AA founder Bill Wilson, who died in 1971. He was a, fa a fascinating person. He had a Lincoln-esque uh, appearance. Uh, he looked, as a, in, 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 to my mind, humbly enough to be a great man. You know, as he had, and he, to a great extent, I think, uh, played on it, too. Uh, tall, lanky, uh, door-looking, uh, uh, who could flash a wonderful smile or could look like a, a drowned sheepdog. 
he was dynamic. He was a salesman all of his life in the brokerage business. He'd, he'd, he'd uh, sell you your own gold watch. He'd, he'd, we used to meet occasionally in New York in the, in the Plaza Hotel Oak Room Bar there. He used to drink ginger ale and settle the affairs of state. Bill was uh, a very comfortable person to be around. You wanted to confide in Bill because he was so comfortable. Um, you could talk almost anything with Bill. I carried all my troubles to him. He was like my father uh, or brother. Nell Wing, not herself an AA member, served as Bill Wilson's longtime secretary at the headquarters in New York. He had suffered so much, and uh, the depressions, I have a big folders on his depressions, and uh, he was always talking to people about how to um, reach a level of serenity that they could not find, and so many members are subject to depressions themselves, and in this respect, he was enormously helpful. I've heard people come up to him and say, Bill, thank you for saving my life twice. AA's beautiful ability to share of themselves is so based on having walked through the valley of the shadow that they know what, what abandonment means and um, from themselves and from other people. Something that other people who talk about illnesses, emotional illnesses, don't understand on the outside. They don't understand the depth of what's, where there may be uh, uh, ability to throw off and make light or something like that. But underneath, it's when they talk in the meetings and they talk to each other that you get that feeling. Bill could share that in a fantastic level. Bill Wilson's tormented journey was dramatized in the 1989 film My Name is Bill W., Academy Award nominee James Woods portrayed the title character. I feel cheated, angry, always so full of fear. So I drink more, and it makes it okay for a while. I convince myself that things will turn around tomorrow, soon, that I'll make it all up for you, but it only gets worse. <laughs> I keep promising you, others, myself, that's it, no more. Going on the wagon, that's it. And I think I mean it, but... But the guilt... and the depression... I can't look in a mirror. William Griffith Wilson had a troubled childhood. His father deserted the family when Bill was 10 years old. His mother shortly left for Boston, leaving Bill and his sister in Vermont in the care of their grandparents. At age 22, he married Lois Burnham, a physician's daughter from New York, where he would find work on Wall Street. Till the end of his remarkable life, she maintained heroic devotion to Bill, despite many agonizing trials. She died in 1988. In the 2010 film When Love is Not Enough, Winona Ryder depicted the story of Lois Wilson, who would go on to form Al-Anon, a support group for loved ones of alcoholics. Here, Bill lies in a hospital bed, trembling after a binge. Bill, can you hear me? Bill, I thought your love for me would make you stop. But if you can't stop for us, then stop because you'll die if you don't. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I fight for you with everything I have. I will fight for you, but I need you to help me. I need you to fight with me. We have to do this together, honey. 
I'm right here, Bill. I'm right here. Bill Wilson's frightful descent into addiction would continue even as the consequences of his drinking grew worse. His doctor, William Silkworth, who treated many thousands of drunks, warned of possible brain damage and declared Bill's case to be hopeless. And privately, he informed Lois of her grim choices, have Bill committed, watch him go crazy, or simply let him die. But a new development would introduce a hint of light in the bleakly dark tunnel. Bill's longtime friend and drinking buddy, Ebby Thatcher, turned up at one point, and to everyone's astonishment, Ebby was now sober. He had joined the Oxford Group, a Christian-based organization popular in the 1930s. Some of its principles of rigorous self-examination, confessing one's misconduct, and making restitution were later adapted to the 12 steps. Ebby had a friend named Roland Hazard, also an alcoholic, who sought treatment by the world-famous psychiatrist Carl Jung, Bill S. Roland Hazard uh, went to Switzerland to try and solve his alcohol problem. And he worked with Dr. Jung for a considerable period of time, felt that he was sober. He left and uh, promptly got drunk again. And Jung famously said to him, uh, listen, you're, you're an alcoholic of such a type that uh, I, I just can't help you. There's nothing I can do for you. Uh, nobody can help you. Now, once in a while, once in a while, I've seen and I've heard of people who have had this huge psychic change, uh, what, what he called in, in the first writing of that story by, by Bill Wilson, a vital religious experience. That phrase was changed to a vital spiritual experience before the book was published. But Jung said, the only people I've seen who have been able to get sober and stay sober are people who have gone through this tremendous change. And uh, Hazard supposedly said, well, that, that's great. He was an Episcopalian. He goes to church. I, he said, I've got this great, I've got a great religious practice. And Jung says, that, well, that's a little naive because uh, clearly uh, the religious practice that you've been doing over the last several years has not been able to keep you sober. You need a vital religious experience that is going to keep you sober. So you need to, you need to go back and, and take your game up on a spiritual level and find a power greater than yourself that will, in fact, allow you to stay sober and not drink again. And uh, Hazard did that, took that advice, and that advice got, got passed from Dr. Jung to Hazard to Abby Thatcher to Bill Wilson. That message from Dr. Carl Jung, a towering figure of 20th century wisdom, apparently was taken to heart by Bill Wilson. In late 1934, at age 39, he lay in desolation at Towns Hospital in New York. Ralph B. Bill, at his highest, was in front of an audience telling his story and uh, making it seem the most, most natural thing in the world, that he had a spiritual experience uh, that he accepted in a modest way. I was, in fact, a child crying in the dark. And I said, as you have said, now I will do anything to get well. Anything to get well. 
God knows this is more serious than cancer. And indeed, I have a cancer of the mind, of the emotions, and of the soul. Yes, I will do anything to get well. And then, with no hope, no faith at all, I cried out, if there is a God, will he show himself? My experience was granted to me very suddenly. It seemed to me that place lit up in a great white light. In the mind's eye, I seem to be on a mountaintop. A great wind is blowing, and I know it is not of air, but of spirit. A sense of presence is around and through me. And I say to myself, thank God that I'm a free man. Exploring the remarkable history of Alcoholics Anonymous. From its founding in 1935, AA developed into a worldwide support group that has helped tens of millions recover from the ravages of alcoholism. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about the 12 steps of AA, an audio download or CD of this documentary, Steps to Recovery, the History of AA, please visit humanmedia.org. Bill Wilson's physician had explained that alcoholism is not just a vice or a habit. This is compulsion, he said. This is pathological craving. This is disease. Yet somehow, after Wilson's dramatic flash of inspiration in his hospital room that December day in 1934, he would never drink again. But Alcoholics Anonymous marks its beginning as the following June, after Wilson met the man who was to become the co-founder of AA, Robert Smith. Well, they were both professional men. Historian Bill S. Uh, Bill Wilson uh, is frequently called a stockbroker. He wasn't really a stockbroker. He was a, an entrepreneurial stock analyst. Bill was very, very, very successful with that. He was a very sophisticated uh, analyst and uh, a very sophisticated investor. Bob Smith, on the other hand, was a, was a doctor. He was a proctologist. Uh, He'd been in uh, Akron for a number of years, uh, although his drinking had seriously impacted his uh, practice, as it had, of course, Bill Wilson's reputation on Wall Street. He'd become a lone wolf down there. People weren't, didn't want to talk to him at all by the time we got into the mid-30s. Both of them were all, uh, what some people might call raging alcoholics at the time, getting in tremendous amount of trouble. And both had consulted physicians and explored some kind of a spiritual solution, but addiction is a perfect storm of physical craving, emotional disturbance, and soul sickness. And while professionals had certainly tried, and Bill Wilson was in a fragile remission, neither man by that point had found a lasting way out of the addictive trap. One of the key discoveries, if you will, of uh, Bill Wilson and the early members of Alcoholics Anonymous was that the message 
of recovery, uh, which had always been delivered by professionals or non-alcoholics, typically with little success, could be done with a much higher degree of success by one drunk talking to another drunk. Uh, Wilson's famous first encounter with Dr. Bob Smith, for instance, uh, was a was a conversation that he claimed uh, all he did was tell Bob Smith his story, his drinking uh, problems, his drinking escapades, the uh, the low point to which he got over and over and over again, the resolutions he made, and and the lack of success he had with getting sober until he stumbled on this formulation that uh, that worked for him. The historic first encounter of these two personalities occurred in May 1935, at a point when Bill had managed to maintain a tentative sobriety of a few months. He had traveled from New York to Akron, Ohio, on a business mission to join a proxy fight involving a local rubber machinery company, Bill S. When he got out there, it was clear they were going to lose that fight. And at one point... In his disappointment, Wilson found himself pacing the the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, Ohio. And uh, at one end of the lobby, famously, was a bar where he could hear the tinkling of glasses and the laughter of drinkers. And at the other end was a phone booth, next to which was a a list of uh, churches and uh, the Sunday services. And he paced back and forth, paced back and forth. Realizing how severely tempted he was to go in and drink and throw away five months of sobriety, which he had at that point. Uh, He also realized that what had kept him sober for those five months in New York, despite the fact that he had gotten nobody sober in New York during that time frame, was that he had worked hard with other people, that he had gone out and uh, tried to find other people that he could talk to and to help. He, He was trying to help. By telephone, Bill Wilson reached an Akron clergyman who put him in touch with a woman active in the local chapter of the Oxford Group, the same organization that Bill's drinking buddy, Ebby Thatcher, found helpful. On Bill Wilson's behalf, she telephoned the home of Dr. Bob Smith, a personal friend whose severe drinking problem distressed her deeply. Unfortunately, Dr. Bob at that moment was passed out under the dining room table. But she arranged for Bill to meet Bob at her home the following day. The beleaguered doctor greeted him warily. Their awkward first conversation is reconstructed in the stage play Bill W. and Dr. Bob. In that hotel lobby, I knew, knew in my guts, like a man knows he's going to die, that to stay out of that bar, I needed help. I tried praying. It didn't work. And then I realized that what I needed was another drunk to talk to, just as much as he needed me. Friend, I need your help. Well, how can I help? I think you just have. We could take a little more time. Okay. I... I'm listening. Oh. (laughs) Well, uh, I use pills and booze every day. 
I wake up with the jitters and take a sedative to steady my hands for surgery. Start drinking again in the afternoon, need to get drunk to get to sleep. I'm terrified of not being able to sleep. Sometimes in the operating room, I'm as high as a kite. Lucky I haven't killed somebody. If I don't drink, I'm a monster. I, I need it. Boost, boost, it's the, it's the glue holding me together. The monster is our disease. That initial exchange gradually deepened into a bond of genuine respect and affection. Bill Wilson soon took up temporary lodging at the home of Dr. Bob and his wife, Anne, who welcomed the visitor as a ray of hope. Then at a medical convention the next month, Bob slipped again briefly, but it would be his final relapse. Once back on the wagon, he and Bill approached a hospital patient, a lawyer they would call Bill D. A nurse wondered if he might become AA number three. At first cautious, the lawyer decided to take them up, a preliminary indication that AA might have legs. They discover, first off, that they can understand each other in a way they've never been able to understand other people, and second, that helping each other help themselves. Keith Humphreys of Stanford. So it was, you know, having someone to support me matters, but also my ability to say, I get you. You know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic as well. I understand you. Funnily enough, that helping of other people helped oneself. And that became central to AA's entire philosophy of how recovery works. It really was kind of an epiphany by Bill Wilson to realize that only by reaching out to another alcoholic could he safeguard his own sobriety. Yeah, that was it was a it's a radical insight really. I mean, if you if you think about how mental health services works in general, if you go in as a patient, the expectation is I'm going to be the focus and, you know, the the designated helper is going to help me. And it it's, you know, a fundamental rethinking to say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to be a helper and a helpee at the same time. And as it turns out, psychological research done over the years validates uh, that insight. Because if we look at the literature on social support, you get some benefit from being um, given social support. But the evidence is even stronger that you get benefit from giving social support. That seems to be good for our health to help other people. The dance of mutual support occurs on a level playing field in AA. Since all members have battled addiction, no one can pull rank on anyone else. In a sense, all alcoholics are equal experts. The dynamics of helping each other rely on people's openness, revealing one's own experience with honesty and humility, and listening to others with compassion. Well, the beauty of sharing your story is uh, you've gone from the abstract to the particular. You're talking about what happened to me. This is who I am. I'm, I'm the kind of guy who lost a job. I'm the kind of guy who had a near-fatal car accident. I was a guy who swore off, and I actually swore off for a month, but when I came back and started drinking again after a month, it was worse than it was before. All of those things are, are intimate. They're, 
they're personal, they're uh, believable because they're coming from that kind of a, a, a source. It's a practical approach. It's a, it's a story about what happened to me and how bad I was and how good I got it today because of what I've done with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Bon Collard. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Dr. Steve Bergman and Janet Surrey for permission to use an excerpt from their play, Bill W. and Dr. Bob. To William White, WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut, Stanford University, and to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions, program development provided by Short Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Steps to Recovery, the History of AA, Part 1, is Humankind Program number 224. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.